see you on campus this morning, and thank you to those who are joining us online as well. If you are new to our church, we are so grateful that you're here with us, and we would love to know who you are. Uh, you can text the word CONNECT to the number that's on the screen, and one of our staff members will follow up with you this week, and you can do that if you're online or with us on campus as well. I do praise God for uh, the disaster relief efforts that are going to be happening uh, through our church and are already happening through our uh, family of uh, Southern Baptist churches, and uh, and I know that that's something that's on our hearts, and we want to continue to pray. I do encourage those of you who feel led to give uh, to those efforts. Uh, another thing to celebrate is that we uh, had the opportunity to partner with Anchor Church in uh, Freeport and send uh, care packages to some of those who are maintaining the aircrafts that you've seen uh, flying out of Kabul, and the first service took them all. So if you want to help with that, next time you have to get here earlier. Um, so uh, praise God uh, for that. I do want to draw to your minds or draw to your attention uh, to uh, two different opportunities you can help with on our campus. One uh, are uh, what we call Bayshore Buddies. So in our children's ministry, uh, we have incredible teachers and volunteers, and uh, we have a few of our children who just need uh, some one-on-one -on -one attention on Sundays uh, that help them stay engaged and help our teachers to uh, be able to uh, oversee their classes. And so if that's something you might be interested in doing, uh, you can certainly stop by the boat or let Lucas, uh, our children's director, ministry director, know. And uh, we would love for you to partner in that way. Those who are already doing that, you are my heroes, and thank you so much. Uh, one additional need that exists on our campus is our middle school boys uh, need two volunteers. So uh, we, because of transitions, uh, we're just short uh, children, uh, student ministry volunteers. And so uh, if there are two men who are interested in serving in the student ministry, here is what I can guarantee you. If you walk in that room, middle school boys, there is going to be a fog uh, in there every Sunday, but it is not the Holy Spirit. It's Acts body spray, but... God will still use you. So I have two middle school boys, so I would be grateful for you to be a part of what God is doing there. Well, we've been following the life of Jesus through the gospel of Mark, and today our journey, our journey takes us into chapter 6 and into Jesus's hometown. And as we read in chapter 6, you might have a hard time fully understanding how this fits in the series, He is Greater Than Fear. Uh, first, I would say that we come up with our series titles because we're going through books of the Bible, so the books of the Bible are actually driving what we teach, not some, you know, making it fit in some uh, catchy series, and so uh, that's part of why. Uh, the other reason is I think as we really dig into what uh, we're learning about today, you will see how fear really plays into what uh, the lesson is from today. So uh, when we go into Jesus's hometown, you have people who are familiar with Jesus, and we see that their familiarity with him, his approachability is actually a barrier to their belief. So let's read uh, our text today and then let's talk through what takes place and spend some time talking about the implications of it for today. Mark chapter six, verse one through six. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is, this not, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. 
And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. So Jesus and the disciples sailed back over to Galilee where Jesus healed the bleeding woman and Jairus' daughter, which you read about last week. And as they head through Galilee, Jesus decides to stop in his hometown. Now the word for hometown is actually fatherland. Capernaum had become Jesus' hometown. That's where many people would say Jesus was from, but he was actually from and grew up in Nazareth. We, we identify with this because uh, when you are, you know, from a small town, a lot of people may not really understand where that small town is, so you have to associate it with somewhere that's more familiar. That's why people would often say Jesus was from Capernaum. For example, if you travel somewhere and you're from Niceville and people ask where you're from, they say two things. One, I bet it's nice there, which I'm like, yeah, I've never heard that before. And secondly is, where is that? And uh, you have to say, well, have you ever heard of Destin and Maybe. So have you ever heard of Pensacola? Maybe. It's like six hours from Disney World, okay? That's where it is, all right? So it's the same from Nazareth. You, a lot of people didn't know about Nazareth, but Jesus goes to Nazareth, and on the Sabbath, he begins to teach in the synagogue there. And it says that many of those who were listening were astonished. Several translations say that they were amazed. What Jesus was teaching was shocking. It was stunning to the crowds, just had been, the, had been the case in other settings, Jesus taught as one with authority and not as a scribe. But the fact that he was not a rabbi and was teaching in this way was really perplexing to the Jewish audience. And verse 2 says that they questioned, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, I should point out once again that people are not denying the authority of Jesus. They're questioning the source of the authority of Jesus. This was a common rejection that Jesus faced, but it is a little different this time. Jesus had grown up in Nazareth. The population of Nazareth was only a couple of hundred people, so many of them knew Jesus for at least his childhood. He potty trained there. He experienced a lot of his first there. He ran the streets playing with the children there. And he apparently began to work his craft there. Verse 3 says they questioned, is not this the carpenter? This is one of the evidences in the Bible that Jesus' family trade was carpentry. In addition to homemaking, carpenters were people who made plows and yokes and carts and wheels and even repaired boats. It was a respectable trade to be a carpenter, but being a carpenter didn't make you special and you really shouldn't be the one teaching in the synagogue if you were a carpenter. Certainly not the way that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. And they say, isn't this the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? They say, we know his family. We know where he grew up. We know who, where he's from. And those people, they don't even believe all that he is saying. But they aren't just saying, isn't he a carpenter? And don't we know his family? Don't we know this guy? It has a much darker tone than that. What they're beginning to do here is they're discrediting him. You see, to call Jesus the son of Mary is an insult. Men would be referred to as their fathers, even if their father was dead in this time. And so it's possible now that they recalled the rumors about Jesus' birth, 
According to scholar E. Stauffer, customs were, were that nothing would be said about your birth if your life pleased God. But if you were to become an apostate, then your illegitimacy could be spoken of publicly and unsparingly. You see, the questioning here of Jesus' birth and the reference to him of, as son of Mary is actually one of the evidences in the Bible of the virgin birth. And Mark tells us that they took offense. The Greek word used here for offense comes from the word scandalizo. It's where we get the word scandal. It can be translated literally as stumbling block. What Jesus was doing caused them to trip. It caused them to not be able to move forward. They did not like that Jesus was teaching in this way and what Jesus was doing. And Mark says they took offense at him. They took offense at him. This is personal. So Jesus teaches in his hometown. And while they are amazed by his teaching and his knowledge, they say, nah, this is Mary's boy, the carpenter. He shouldn't be saying these things. And the inclusion of this account is actually great evidence to the intent of the authors to record what actually happened and not write in a way that embellished who Jesus was. And the reason that Mark is including this account and the reason he includes much of what he says is so that we learn from Jesus' response. Look at verse four. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Being without honor means that you're being dishonored. It's being despised. It means that you are something people want to cover up or what you are doing is something that people want to cover up. Jesus says a prophet gets honor for the word he declares except among those who are most familiar with him. Then Mark says this prevented Jesus from staying there and ministering in the same way he had in most towns and would continue to do so. Verse five says, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now I wanna be clear about something here. Jesus could do whatever work he wanted to do. There's a clip a viral clip of a very popular preacher making its way around the internet, it's maybe died down a little bit, that, that teaches this incorrectly. Here's what that pastor says in this clip. The power of God was in Jesus, the healing power of God, the restoring power of God, the same power that made demons flee was in Nazareth, but Jesus could not release it because it was trapped in their unbelief. And there's one thing, he goes on to say, that even Jesus can't do. One thing that even the Son of God can't do. Even Jesus cannot override your belief. It was trapped in their perspective. Now, I get what this guy's trying to do. He's trying to inspire people, even though he doesn't know his Bible very well. What he says is wrong. In Genesis chapter 18, whenever God promises to Abram and Sarah that they would have a child, and they question this, God says, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? In Psalm 115, verse two, it says, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Job 42, verse two says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah 42, verse 27 says, for the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and he, who will turn it back? 
In Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, when Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to get to heaven, and the disciples say, well, then how can this man be saved? He says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. God can do whatever he wants, and it doesn't matter if you believe or not. It doesn't matter what you think about the future. Jesus is going to accomplish his will. But what this passage is telling us is that Jesus did not do works there. And the reason he chose not to do these works there is because of their unbelief. Matthew makes it very clear in his gospel. He says, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Mark tells us that Jesus kept on teaching, that he did lay hands on people there, and that he was essentially in a circuit teaching. He would continue to go through Galilee preaching and doing many mighty works, but just not in Nazareth. And verse 6 tells us, and he marveled because of their unbelief. I don't know what's going on there. I'm marveling at whatever that was. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. Now, there's only one other incident in the Bible where Jesus marveled or is full of amazement. It's when he is amazed at the faith of the centurion. Now, here it is not faith that amazes him, but the lack of faith. So let's reflect on what Mark tells us about this crowd in Nazareth so that we can understand the significance of this account. And as we reflect on this, I'm gonna make some statements that I hope you will jot down and consider. They'll be on the screen, so that'll help you. So first, Mark tells us that they are astonished at Jesus' teaching. So they come and they hear Jesus, and he seems to be teaching the word of God. He knows his stuff. And what he is teaching lands with them. It, it resonates, it connects with their soul. It convicts them and they want to hear more. But then the next thing we know is that Mark indicates to us that they are then offended by Jesus. Why? Mark says, they begin to say, we know this guy. We know his family. And so they discredit him. We don't hear anything that he said, which was wrong. Or we don't know of anything that he did that was wrong. And if we read the life of Jesus, then it's kind of inconsistent with his character to have done anything wrong ever. So why then would this familiarity with Jesus be reason for not believing Jesus? As I encountered this text, and I've even heard it taught in this way, I, I was thinking, is it the idea that familiarity breeds contempt? And so, so I did some research on that idea that familiarity breeds contempt. And I actually found came across a few articles, but one from Psychology Today, which is a secular organization, says that familiarity actually doesn't really breed contempt. It's not proven to breed contempt. If anything, familiarity breeds taking people for granted. I mean, anybody who's been married probably understands that a little bit. But actually what familiarity does, it actually causes trust. It causes the opposite of contempt for things that people would teach. So familiarity is really not the reason that they are offended and they are not the only ones who would be offended by Jesus. If you read through the Gospels, the Pharisees did not like that Jesus wasn't following their rules. And so they were offended by Jesus. In fact, in our next series, which begins in October, we will get into that big time. The Jews would not like that Jesus did not establish an earthly kingdom for them. 
And so they were offended by Jesus. The Gentiles did not like that Jesus de-emphasized the authority of their leaders. And so they were offended by Jesus. Jesus gave reasons for them to be offended. And I would actually suggest to you that if you have never been offended by Jesus, then you likely haven't met him. If you've never been offended by Jesus, then you likely haven't met him. If Jesus always just fits what you think about how you should live your life and how you should view life, then what I would suggest to you is that if you believe in Jesus, it's actually a made-up Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. The early apostles actually understood this. And they understood the tension of the gospel message that Jesus proclaimed and then they were proclaiming. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 through 23. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The gospel message is talked about as the word of God and that the word of the cross is offensive. That means the message of the cross is offensive. What is the message of the cross? The message of the cross is that you and I are sinners that deserve death, and yet, because of the sacrifice of God, we can have righteousness. Now, that's good news, but a lot of people don't see it as good news. Verse 23 says it's foolishness to Gentiles. It's not given weight or value. They see the cross as foolishness. And I would suggest that many people today see the cross as foolishness. Why? Well, the message of Jesus does not satisfy our earthly desires. The message of Jesus does not satisfy our earthly desires. I want you to think about the Jews The Jews were God's chosen people. God had promised Abraham many offspring, a great nation. God had delivered them powerfully from the slavery to the Egyptians. God had led Israel through the wilderness to the promised land to become a mighty nation. David became a great king. Solomon built upon that and so forth. And yet, they were captured in captivity and eventually in slavery. And while they experienced some freedom, they were second-class citizens. But in the days of Jesus, they had their religion. And they believed and wanted to see signs of God's power that indicated that they one day again would have power. And many of them rejected the gospel, rejected Jesus, because there was no sign of that power. Wait, they saw Jesus heal, right? But those were not signs confirming what they wanted. They wanted the restoration of Israel to power, and so they rejected him. And even today, many who think that that's what God wants for them reject him. So you have the Jews who are looking for earthly power, who are looking for signs that they are God's chosen people on earth. But on the other side, you have the Greeks who were hungry for wisdom, who were hungry for knowledge. Now, 
If you understand the context of, of the Greeks in this day, their loyalties were not primarily to empirical knowledge, but to that which was rational according to their own fallen standards. Their wisdom did not start with what is true, but their wisdom started with what do I feel and then what philosophy fits that or validates that. Their focus was on what benefits me in this life, what gives me practical help in this life. And so many Greeks rejected the gospel because it did not meet their standards of human wisdom. They said, how does this help me to have a better life on earth? The fact that the Messiah died. And what I would suggest is if your faith helps you to have the life you want, then the cross is beneath you. And that's why I think what happens in this popular preacher that I referenced earlier and much of what I would call pop Christianity is that we begin to de-emphasize who Jesus is and elevate who we are, and all we are looking for Jesus to do is to make us shine. But we don't come to the cross to shine. We come to the cross to die. We do not come to the cross to shine. We come to the cross to die. We come to the cross because we say, I don't deserve a sign. I don't deserve wisdom. I don't deserve elevation. I deserve death. So... If you are looking for a sign that gives you the life you want, the power you want, the influence you want, the cross says you don't deserve any of that. That's where the message of Jesus was going. You can see this in the life and the rhythms of Jesus. People came to Jesus because they were amazed by his power and his teaching. And when he began to teach, we must die to self for righteousness, the crowd shrunk. They did not believe. And that's what Mark says about the people of Nazareth. But belief is key. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Hebrews 11.6 says that without faith, without belief, it is impossible to please God. To believe in something means that you hold it to be true. You trust in it, whether it's an idea, a principle, or a person. We are all believers. Many of us get married believing this person is going to make us happy or help us be happy or not wreck our lives at least. Many of us drive in a vehicle believing that the other people aren't gonna cross that line or that the vehicle isn't going to explode. Many of us drink water, believing that there's not poison in that water. You are a believer. You might have doubts about uh, that person, or you might have doubts about those people in the other vehicles, or the one you get in, or the water you're drinking, but it's worth it, and so you begin to trust in it. Any conclusion that you come to in life takes some evidence, and the more we find out, the more or less likely we are to trust in whatever that thing is. But the more we trust in something, the more we are convinced are we are in it. And so we test it out and we make sure we can trust in this. And this brings us back to our text and how this group just dismissed Jesus. Why did they not test what he was teaching? Why did they not follow him? And this is huge for us and our neighbors because it's amazing as you read the Bible, and I would say as you look at the world, that people are amazed by Jesus, but don't believe in him. It's amazing that people are amazed by Jesus, 
but they never believe in him. They never trust in him. They never follow him. They never obey him. And so their relationship with Jesus remains, he's something incredible, but we don't really begin to trust in him. I think there are two things that mask our lack of faith in Jesus. So these are two things that cause us to not see that we actually don't have faith in Jesus. One is the ordinariness of Jesus, the ordinariness of faith. Alistair Begg calls it the veil of his ordinariness, the veil of his ordinariness. And I think a lot of people aren't really following Jesus because a lot of times just following Jesus looks pretty ordinary. In fact, I think many people are led astray into false teaching and false doctrine because of this. With, with all respect to these belief systems, I'm not saying everybody who believes in these things are not Christians, but a lot of what appeals people about Catholicism is how mystical it is, how sacred it feels, the rituals, the, the shrouds of mystery, the veils. And yet often people feel so secure in those things and have never really taken the time to get to know who Jesus is. I would also say we see this in what uh, extreme examples of charismatic Christianity. We begin to be motivated by these mountaintop worshipful experiences, but we err in so many of our understandings, not really looking into who Jesus is and following him. I'd also say in the kind of new age, experiential version of Christianity that exists today, a lot of it is so driven by how we feel and not who Jesus was. But what Christianity is about, the life of a Christian is about, is the word discipleship. It's following Jesus. It's learning from Jesus. Eugene Peterson calls that walk with Jesus a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. It's not that Jesus is with us in a confession booth or when incense is burning or when the fog machine is going or the loops are just right. It's that Jesus is with us day in and day out. And as we trust him and we obey him, in that ordinary life, Jesus begins to fill us with a confidence that helps us to overcome whatever might be scaring us about our lives and what moves forward because he's with us in all of it. Now, another thing that masks our lack of faith in Jesus, another thing that causes us not to see that we don't trust in Jesus is familiarity. Many of us grew up in the South, grew up in America. Many of this room and those online this morning grew up in the church, and you are so familiar with God. You're so familiar even with the cross. It's in your, on the wall in your house, behind the preachers that you grew up listening to. You're familiar with the resurrection. You get dressed up every year because Jesus rose from the grave. You're familiar with church. And I want to read to you an excerpt from Dr. Billy Haynes titled, Are You Too Familiar with Jesus? 
He says, are you expecting by your exposure to the church or your children's exposure to the church that somehow a vibrant faith will result? Are you just close enough to Jesus to be bored by what you know, but not close enough even to be offended? Has the Bible become so mundane to you that you can barely pay attention long enough to digest anything in it? By the use of some of your phones, I would suggest that this morning. What was it that people, the people of Nazareth lacked? What was really at the root of their unbelief? It is the same issue that persists today, a lack of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Only his renewing work in our hearts can provide the real faith we need to trust him. Remember that Christianity is not man's religion, nor is the Bible a divine rule book showing us what we must do. It is a story of a stiff-necked and rebellious people and a holy God who, despite our sin, has set his affection on us yet. It is a story that is consummated in the person and work of Christ. How do we shake familiarity? We humble ourselves in prayer and ask the Lord to renew our heart and fill us with the Spirit. We repent of our sin and we place our faith in Jesus, the one who loves us and gave himself for us. Perhaps this morning, you are so familiar with the concepts of Christianity, but yet you've never encountered the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. And today, by the grace of God, perhaps God will allow you to take a 30,000-foot view, an airplane view of what is so ordinary and normal, and you will see how beautiful and intricate it is. Perhaps God will allow you to slow down for a moment in the busyness of your life and to see how incredible it is that God is with you and what he is doing in this world. And how do we know? How do we know if God has really done this in our hearts? Well, Jesus tells us. It's not just being amazed by him. Because you can be amazed by Jesus and not believe in Jesus. Mark chapter 3, which we read a few weeks ago, tells us what it means to be with God and belong to Jesus Jesus answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at the, about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Don't be deceived. Belief is not passive. Belief is active. Belief leads to obedience. If you love me, you will obey me. Believe in me and you will bear much fruit. Belief leads to obedience. But don't, listen Christian, don't confuse Christian activity with Christian obedience and faith. Kent Hughes says in uh, his book Mark, uh, about Mark, he says, unbelief robs the church of its power. We can add new programs until we do not have enough hours in the day to administrate them or enough bulletin inserts to advertise them. <clears throat> Hello, First Baptist Church on Bayshore. But without a believing expectancy in Christ and his power, nothing will come of it. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. I believe 
that many of you are offended by what Jesus really calls you to live for. It offends your comfort, it offends your safety, it offends your views, and you are afraid of this kind of power because of the things that you hold dear, just like those at Nazareth and the others who will encounter Jesus were afraid. And what I am suggesting to you, what I am urging you today is test and see if you can trust him. And I think you will find what Philip said to be true. In John 146, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Come and see. And that's what Christianity is. It's just this continual growth in what we see in Jesus, amazing us and leading us to belief and then obedience and then to be amazed again. I have a diagram that just shows you that is what Christianity is. Maybe it starts with amazement. And because you're amazed, you say, I think I believe him. And you believe and you obey, and then you're more amazed. Or maybe it starts with the belief that you grew up with, and you believe, and so you obey, and you're amazed at how true it is. Maybe you're in a place where you're struggling to believe, but you say, I'm going to obey. And as you obey, you see how amazing God is, and it leads you to believe. That's what Christianity is, whether we're a new believer and God begins to grow that in us, whether it's a trial happens in our life and it gives us this opportunity, that's what God does in our lives. And so I'm telling you, wherever you are in this, whether you're amazed by Jesus, so believe him and obey him, or maybe you believe, then start living out your beliefs and be amazed by him. And I say all this to you today because I care about you. I don't want you to go through this monotonous, familiar, routine Christian life and miss Jesus. So I'm gonna close with how Charles Spurgeon closed his sermon on the same text because he did better than I would ever do. He says this, I marvel at the unbelief of some of you because it causes you so much grief. It is many months since you had a day of real happiness, some of you. Your conscience is so much awakened that you cannot be quiet, and yet there is rest, rest to be had, and you have it not. There is the cup before you, and you are thirsty, yet you refuse to drink. There is the bread, and you are hungry, but you will not eat. I marvel at your unbelief, and the more, because you have seen others saved, since you were, in you were first impressed, your daughter has found peace. Your son is rejoicing in Christ. The friend who sits next to you in the pew has been long ago with his feet on the rock and a new song in his mouth, and he has told you it is all through his trusting Jesus, and yet you will not trust too. Oh, may God teach you to be reasonable and cure you of this folly. May his Holy Spirit work wisdom of faith in you, it is marvelous that all this while you would be ashamed to say that you doubt anything that God has said. You make God a liar, but would dread to say so. You would not be called an infidel, and yet what better is an unbeliever? 
For a man believes and does not act on what he believes, is he not, if his soul is ruined, even more without excuse than he who had some mental difficulty to plead as a ground of unbelief? My dear friends, some of you who have been sitting here for years and yet do not believe, you are marvels to me. Count you that little? You are marvels to many in your family who long since expected to see you on the Lord's side. You are wonder to devils, even they cannot make it out. The power of their spells has amazed even them. You are a wonder to the damned in hell with what welcome eagerness would they avail themselves at an opportunity to escape from misery, and yet you trifle with such opportunities. You are a marvel to the angels who would have rejoiced over you if you had returned to your father and who wonder that you stand at the foot of the cross from Sunday to Sunday, and yet you doubt the power of him who bled on it. You are marvels to the Lord himself. One of these days, unless you repent, you'll be a wonder to yourselves. For this text will come true to you if God prevents it not. Behold, you despisers and wonder and perish. But I hope better things of you, even things which accompany salvation, though I thus speak. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Before the Redeemer was taken up and ascended to his throne, he left his message to us, his disciples, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. Believe and be baptized, and God grant you his salvation for Jesus' sake. Amen. Pray with me. God, this morning, I pray for the person who is so familiar with the things of Jesus, but has never been real about where they stand with Jesus, has never realized that they need death. God, if we are counting on our pride and our performance, then we are hopeless. But at the feet of the cross, at the foot of the cross, we say we deserve death. And we realize that you died the death we deserve. And as we behold the empty grave, we realize the promise of eternal life. And God, we are amazed by it. And may we believe and trust and obey and experience your goodness over and over again. Help those of us who are believers to place our eyes there, on the cross, on the empty tomb, and ultimately on our eternity with you, and to live every day in the confidence we have in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.